following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel.
will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you. They'll build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will leave not one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. And that happened 70 years later when Titus, the general Rome, the general from Rome, came and encircled Jerusalem and killed over a million Jewish people in the city. It was the time of Passover. People were there from many different nations. And the Roman general came and fulfilled this prophecy. This is very sobering for me because in my heart, I just want to celebrate that Jesus came. Just like at Christmas, I want to celebrate Jesus is born. Or on Easter, Jesus is risen. But mixed into all of that, joy is an edge of terror. Do you know what will bring you peace in your heart? Do you have a good and noble heart? because they did not perceive, because they saw with their eyes but did not understand in their spirit, judgment fell upon them. I don't want judgment to fall on you or me or on America. But it looks like judgment is rapidly approaching this nation. You cannot turn on the financial news without hearing very reputable people say, even this last week, that fiat currency is not a store of value. Well, anyone who has any ability to think knows that fiat currency is not a store of value. There is not anything backing up our dollar bills. There is no longer any gold behind it. There is only the confidence the people have in it, and that confidence is rapidly being destroyed. I remember as a young man with my first car, I bought gas for 18 cents a gallon. Then I remember how 
utterly expensive. I thought it was when it went to 24.9 cents a gallon. Well, is gasoline more expensive today? The answer is no. Gas costs today what it costs then. But our dollar has lost value. The dollar has depreciated. So it's worth less. So it takes more of those dollars to buy the same thing. A good man's suit today costs the same in gold as it did in the 30s. But not in dollars. But in gold, it's the same. Because gold has not lost its value. Our dollars have. Well, we begin to look at the reality of what's happening financially in our nation, and we see that our economy is being crushed, that manufacturing has been sent overseas, that jobs are being destroyed. There's no such thing as a fair trade agreement when America is left without any ability to provide for itself. And so as we see the economy collapsing, I see it as judgment. Judgment because of unscrupulous men and women who have gamed the system. As I look at all of this, I say, what are we going to do? What are you going to do when a loaf of bread costs $15? And economists are saying that's coming, perhaps this fall. Other nations have seen this happen. The Weimar Republic certainly saw this happen. A loaf of bread there sold for a million dollars. We say, that can't happen in America. Oh, really? They were sophisticated people. They were an educated people. How could it happen there? But it can't happen here because we think we're special because we're American. We're not. Finances don't lie. Finance operates by rules. So as we print money out of thin air and dilute the value of the dollar... We're facing an incredible crisis of confidence in fiat money. And I see people who have no comprehension that this is even happening. I spoke to a group of very educated men this last week, and I made these statements to them, and they looked at me like I was from Mars. Ray, what you're saying is not true, they said. Our economy is improving It's rapidly getting better. I said, men, you're drinking the Kool-Aid. It's time to wake up and to see the reality of what happens in every nation when fiat currency is destroyed. And we're rushing down that path of destruction. Well, Jesus is speaking to them and saying, in the midst of national events, in the midst of the struggle with Rome and the finances of Rome, in the midst of all of this, some very terrible things are going to happen to you. 
Your city is going to be destroyed because you didn't understand what would bring you peace. Obviously, the word peace in the Greek coming out of the Hebrew, shalom, meaning all provision that's necessary will be granted by God. That's peace. Provision from God. And that provision has been in America. We have been blessed beyond what any nation in the history of the world has ever been blessed with. We have been the place where people from all over the world have desired to come so they could have this thing called liberty. So in the midst of all of the politics that were going on in Rome, Jerusalem is crushed and over a million people die. And it's interesting, as the Romans were coming to destroy Jerusalem, factions of Jewish people were fighting one another with swords. One group was in the temple claiming the temple is their own. Others outside said, no, the temple is ours. And so they were slaying one another with swords while the Romans were surrounding the city, prepared to destroy it. They were killing each other. There was no peace in the city. There was only utter confusion and darkness and destruction. I'm very interested in this concept of a of a good and noble heart. I want to read you two passages of Scripture. The first is found in Hebrews, the sixth chapter. I'm going to begin reading for you in verse 7. Hebrews, the sixth chapter, beginning in verse 7. Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful to those to whom it is farmed, receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. As I thought through this week and prayed about a good and noble heart, part of what I've been very clear about is that a good and noble heart is possessed by the man or woman who understands that his or her heart or life is being farmed by God. See, we all want to hold on to the illusion that we farm our own life and we produce for ourselves the lifestyle we desire. That is the way the world functions. That's capitalism. It's entrepreneurialism. Things which we have treasured in America. But there is another economy that we are invited to participate in. And that is the economy of God. Where we begin to view our lives as the field that God is sowing in. And he's sowing in us in order to reap a harvest. The harvest he wants to reap from us is a good and noble heart that produces for his kingdom, that is worthwhile for his kingdom. We find this in many different sayings throughout the scripture. Jesus said it 
in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, if you want to follow me, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. In other words, you can't follow Jesus without denying yourself. What are you denying yourself? You're denying that you have the right to farm your own life. Your life belongs to Jesus. So everything then that I begin to do in my life, I do in the understanding that it's being done unto God, that he's in charge of my life. I'm doing that unto him. I'm doing it for his honor and for his glory. So the good and noble heart is what is necessary to begin to practice this farming that must go on in our lives. It says, land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. If you go then with me to Luke, Luke the 8th chapter, there's a parable that is shared, a parable of a farmer who goes out to sow his seed. And we're told by Jesus that this seed is the word of God. Now, there are different kinds of soil. One kind of soil is hard and packed down. And when the seed falls on this soil, the devil, it says, comes and steals the seed away so it can't produce anything of value. Well, what would pack down that soil? It would be that a person has spent so long determined that they will take care of themselves and have their way and build their kingdom that they have no openness in their heart to the spiritual journey to do something different with their lives. They are self-consumed. And so the seed of God falls and they say, that's foolishness. I don't want anything to do with that. I'm in charge of myself. I'm not going to let God be in charge of my life. And then you have another kind of soil. It's rocky soil. It's shallow soil. The word falls on that, and they immediately say, hey, that sounds good. I like the sound of entering into salvation. I like the possibility that I could journey with Jesus. But then it says, as soon as they begin to have difficulties, sickness, financial reverses, they begin to have other things happen in their life. They say, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. A man has to do what a man has to do. I'm out of here. I'm going to go get for myself because I've got to be taken care of. And so off they go on their own, and they blow off the whole Christian journey. And then there is good soil. The seed falls on this good soil. And I call this the choking Christian. These are the Christians who have the word of God, who are excited about the word of God, but then they have thorns that grow up in their heart. And these thorns are identified. They are choked by life's worries, literally in the Greek, life's responsibilities. So I said to one of you this week, have you finished reading the portion of scripture we spoke about a week ago? And the answer was, no, I haven't. Well, what's keeping you from it? 
all of my responsibilities. Oh, those are called in Scripture thorns. And land that produces thorns will be burned in the end. So there are two kinds of responsibilities in Scripture. There are the responsibilities we have to the Lord Jesus Christ, and then every other task that we undertake is undertaken for him. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be given unto you. Pagans go after money. Pagans go after food and shelter and clothing and all the other things that pagans think they need. But the scripture says that Christians do not work for money. Yes, money comes to them in what they do. But they are on assignment in that place to fulfill there what a good and noble heart will produce. And that is love, joy, peace, honesty, integrity, working with all of your heart to produce something of worth out of what you're doing in that place. You're not there for money. You're there as a servant of the living God. You're there to lift other people. You're there to serve other people. And in the process, resources will flow through your life. Story is told of a pilgrimage to the east. On this pilgrimage, a long journey was required. And so the head of the pilgrimage and all of the others who were there were speaking in very spiritual terms. And night after night, they would unload their things from the animals that were carrying them. They would set up the camp. And they would sit around the fire and they would eat their food. And they would talk about the wonders of their pilgrimage. But then one of the men became exceedingly ill, and he had to leave the pilgrimage. He was nobody. He was not spoken of in the group as someone of importance. He was a humble, a humble, quiet man. When he left the pilgrimage and returned home to recover from his illness, Within a matter of days, the whole pilgrimage had collapsed and everyone went home. Well, why? Because there was one man on the pilgrimage who every night would gather the wood and light the fire. There was one man every night who would cook the food. There was one man every night who knew what it took to take care of people on the pilgrimage. In literature, he's referred to as the servant leader. No one in the group recognized that he was the leader. They all looked to the very dignified headman. But in fact, this man was the true leader of the pilgrimage, and he led by humble service. Last night, I had dinner at the Bistro Le Hermitage. And after I was finished with dinner, the owner, Yusuf, called me aside. He said, come, Ray, I want you to drive my new car. 
So we went out, and he just purchased a beautiful Lexus. So he said, come on, drive I said, no, no, no. Now, come on, drive it. So as we're driving this beautiful car, he said to me, I'm letting our receptionist go. I said, why? He's a young man. He's, he has a very nice personality. Why are you letting him go? He said, Ray, he doesn't have even the slightest idea of what it takes to make a restaurant work. He thinks we're all here to serve him. And it doesn't work that way. We're here to serve the people that come in the restaurant. We're not here to be served. He said, now the restaurant business has treated me very well, and so I can drive this beautiful Lexus that you're driving. It has paid me very well but it has only paid me for the level of service I've been able to render to the people who come to the restaurant. Yusuf understands what it takes to make something work. Now, I tell you, many times they have been jammed with people last night, some 200 reservations in a very small seating area. And one of the servers accidentally carrying the dishes back dropped a beautiful crystal half filled with wine and it splattered everywhere. Guess who the first person was on his knees in his suit with a towel wiping customers' legs off and cleaning that wine up on the floor. It was Yusuf. I said, Yusuf, don't you think one of the other servers would have come? He said they would not have gotten there quickly enough because they don't know what it takes to make a restaurant work. Well, that's what happened with this man on the pilgrimage. He knew what it took He knew that when everybody came together, they were going to be hungry. And he knew that a fire had to be started. And he knew that the food had to be prepared. And he knew that the service had to be rendered. And then afterward, he knew all the dishes had to be cleaned up. And others would jump in and help him a little bit. But he was the driving force behind making it happen. See, when we follow Jesus... We're called to be servants, not masters. We're called to understand what it takes to make things work. It's not consumers that God is calling for. It's producers. It's men and women who are willing to sacrifice themselves for another person. This is what a good and noble heart is about. In a family, be very interesting to to identify in your family who it is that makes your family work. Is it you? Do you make your family work? Or do you expect someone else to do the work while you say, I'm tired and kick back? And wives are typically the ones who get this burden blown on them. One wife said to me this last week, 
you know, pastor, I work the same hours that my husband works. When I come home, I have to prepare the meal for the children and for him because he'll want to eat too, strangely enough. And he wants to sit and relax because he says he hasn't been able to relax all day. And he should have the right to sit down and relax when he comes home because he's tired. But doesn't he know I'm tired also? And sitting down and relaxing is not an option. Now, I love moms and mothers because very often you play that wonderful role of homemaker. But I just want to say something to men who are here. You take that woman for granted too long and she'll be gone. Oh, she may not leave, but she'll be gone. And you'll find she collects in other ways. It's vital that we understand what it takes to make things happen. And the call of a noble heart to be a humble servant before God and before other people. Understanding the reality of what it takes You come in and the chairs are all wonderfully set up. But did you know it takes some servants to come here early and set these chairs up? I can guarantee you none of this just happened by accident or happenstance. Somebody understands what it takes to make it happen. And so they come and they make it happen. This program today is absolutely gorgeous. I wish you knew half of the trouble that our sister Debbie goes to to try to make sure that the right names are in the right places. It takes love and care and time to be a servant. And yet to be of a noble heart is first and foremost not to be a master but to be a servant. That's what a noble heart is about. And of course, the noble heart is recognized when that gift of service is rendered out of a free and joyous heart and not a bitter heart. Now, there have been times when I've rendered service out of an angry, bitter heart. I know none of you have ever done that. I know. Sometimes we say, come on, enough's enough. I've had it. Get it together. But God calls us to that good and noble heart that understands the time in which we live and understands what must be accomplished in order to build the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. So the weed of responsibility grows up and takes away from what God wants us to be about. And then it says, riches. The desire for money, for money's sake. The pursuit of money, for money's sake. For a life of ease and comfort. Is a denial of Jesus Christ. Is it wrong to be rich? Absolutely not. He wants to bless us with 
abundant finances to do all the things in the world that he wants us to do. The problem comes when our goal is to be rich in money and not in service to others. It's so interesting to me that for five years, my brother would not speak to me because he said I'd gone insane because I believed in serving Jesus. And he was determined that he would be rich. And so every energy he spent on trying to become wealthy, every dollar he came, he invested in a new business idea. And God, in his great mercy, would not let my brother get rich. Because had he gotten rich, he would have been arrogant and proud, and nobody could have stood to be around him. He was not blessed with wealth. And then he went bankrupt. And he lost everything. In one final desperate bid. When I heard about it, I immediately knew he could not make his mortgage. And so I wrote a check and sent it to him for his mortgage payment. Remember, he hasn't talked to me for five years. I sent him the mortgage payment. I didn't hear a word back. The next month, I sent his mortgage payment a second time. I still heard nothing. Third month, I sent his mortgage payment. This time, a phone call. Very humble. Ray, thank you. You're welcome. It was from Jesus. What joy it brought to my heart to have my brother finally acknowledge that he could not do it on his own and he had to receive from the hand of Jesus to even pay for his mortgage. And what a change has happened in my brother's heart. He's one of the sweetest, funniest men I've ever met. All of the lust for money has gone from his heart. And now he does everything for everyone that he can. He's on Social Security. All of his big money's gone. But he has a sweet, humble spirit. And I said to him, last time we were together, he lives in the West. I said to him, tell me, Don, would you rather be who you are today or would you rather have money? He said, I'd rather be who I am today. What victory to finally understand. Now, some people can have money and be humble. Some people can't do that. They don't know how. And so God has to do what he has to do in their hearts to shape them. Because what God is about is shaping us and creating in us that good and noble heart. That's what he wants. Then you come to this. There's seed in verse 15. This is Luke 8, 15. But the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart. Noble and good heart. Who hear the word, retain it, 
and by persevering or by patience, produce a crop. It's not a get-rich scheme. It's not an overnight wealth deal. It's being given that, that good and noble heart, taking the word of God, retaining it, and then being absolutely persistent and patient and never giving up. Never giving up. I was reading Mark 11 again. And if you, if you have your scripture, just turn quickly. Mark 11 is this wonderful promise. And I've been standing by faith. I announced to you a couple weeks ago that I was engaged. And I don't have the slightest idea who I'm engaged to. But I am engaged. Because Jesus told me I was. But I want to read this for you. Have faith in God, verse 22, Jesus answered. I tell you the truth, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. We serve a covenant God. He responds only to his promises, his covenant promises. When we stand on those covenant promises, we can believe that he will do what he said he will do. And we pray that promise until we get absolute assurance in our heart that it's done. We can trust him. What has given me such courage this week is it says, it will be done for him. It doesn't say, and the Lord will give you the strength to do it. We're talking about an intervention from heaven to do something for you that you cannot do for yourself. And that you pray and you stand on that promise. Now, I'm not saying don't do anything. You do everything that you know to do. You deal with every aspect to the best of your ability. And then you come to a point where you cannot do anymore. It's done. You've gone as far as you can go. Now you turn to the Lord and you stand on this promise and you say, okay, Lord, you said it would be done for me. Now I need your intervention in time and space and history to do for me what I cannot do for myself. And I will not waver in my belief. It is as good as done because you said it was. You don't see any evidence of it. You just believe it because the scripture says it. And you stand by faith that it will be done. And over and over and over, I've experienced the hand of Jesus come and move in miraculous power to open the way. I've watched this month again as God has done that with the radio in paying for radio. I mean, look around. Could this little fellowship and the five families that called in sick today, could we manage $3,500 a month plus church expenses? There's not a possibility we could do that. And in his grace, every month, he covers the cost of that radio. Now let's 
Let's go once more to the book of Hebrews. And I want to conclude today by talking about this good and faithful heart, this noble heart. When a person comes into relationship with Jesus Christ, and they say to Jesus, Jesus, I've gone as far as I can go on my own. I can't carry this anymore. I've tried the best I can to be a moral person. I've tried the best I can to love everyone, but there is still anger and hatred in my heart. There's still an emptiness in my soul. I've done everything I know to do, and I can't do it. You finally come to a place where you say, Jesus, I'm giving you total authority over my life. I'm asking you to rule over my life, to be my king. And I am surrendering everything into your hands. Will you take charge of my life? You deny yourself. You say, I can't do it. I don't have the power. I don't have the time. I don't have the ability. I can't do it. Whether that's doing drugs, alcohol, fornication, adultery, bitterness, anger, stealing, whatever the sin is, and every one of us have had some specific area where we knew we could not handle it. Pride, self-sufficiency, arrogance, Our heart's been convicted about it. We say, I'll work on it. And we work on it. And we go take seminars and workshops. And we do everything we can. And we we improve a little bit. We hide it a little bit better. But we recognize we're not there. And you finally turn over control to Jesus. He said, deny yourself. Take up your cross. That is, be crucified die out to your old person and follow Jesus. If you have done that, if you have made that covenant with the Lord God of heaven, you now have a good and noble heart. Now it's up to us to claim it because we have it. That's what Jesus called being born again being born from above. Now, if you're like me, you probably have spent a fair amount of time in your life beating up on yourself. There is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1. Now, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The big task that I see that we have is to clean the junk off of our good and noble heart so it can function. The self-criticism, the condemnation, the judgments, it's time to let go of them. It's time to own the gift that Jesus has given to us, which is a good and noble heart. He doesn't make junk. 
when we're born again, that heart is there. Now we can go back and feed the old wicked heart of sin. And we can side with that old wicked heart. And we can even pump some blood back into it. But the call of God is to let that old heart completely die out. Because he wants to give us a new heart. In scripture, hearts cannot be repaired. Did you know that? Hearts are not repaired. They are transplanted. You get a new heart. Jesus never anywhere in Scripture talks about doing a renovation job on your heart. The heart is exceedingly wicked. It's exceedingly deceitful. It takes a new heart. And the Scripture calls that heart a good and noble heart. And the nobility is evidenced by its willingness to love its willingness to serve, its willingness to know what it takes to make things work and functioning as a servant in your world, a humble servant, a joyful servant. Knowing that the journey that we've been called to take, we cannot successfully make with a wicked heart. We need a new heart. And all of you who've been born again have been given that new heart. But I find lots of Christians with so much trash piled on their new heart that it can barely beat. And frankly, probably one of the greatest tasks we have is to empty the trash out of our lives. To let go of destructive relationships. To clean out those places where we are bitter and angry and feel put upon. To begin to speak the truth in love one to another. God can take whatever you want to say to him. He's big enough to handle it. But we don't clean out this closet full of trash until we're willing to begin to open our mouths in the prayer closet and honestly unfold to him everything that is in our heart that's shoving down and limiting our nobility in Jesus Christ. What do you think you're going to be like when you finally meet Jesus in heaven? You think you're going to need a Holy Spirit facelift in heaven? Now you're going to be joyful. Why? Because all the trash is gone. Well, we can walk that way now in freedom before Jesus. Being filled with the Holy Spirit. When we think about today, Palm Sunday, we think about Jesus being led on a donkey as the new king of Israel. And he weeps over Jerusalem because they reject the good and noble heart he desires to give them. He weeps over them because their heart is filled with partisan bickering 
with selfishness, with anger. He weeps over them because they will not receive the gift he has come to give them. Take some time this week. Don't believe me. Go in the prayer closet and ask Jesus if he's given you a good and noble heart. Challenge him to show you that heart. Ask him to unveil it for you. Ask him to show evidence that there is a good and noble heart beating inside of you. And start carrying the rubbish out. The judgments, the anger, self-condemnation. Get rid of it. You don't need it. You've carried it too long. The lust, the burning for sin. We don't need these things. They don't profit us. And they stop the heart from beating that is within us, that is our life. Let's pray. Jesus, I come shouting today because you're riding on that donkey into the city of peace, into Jerusalem. I wish I could have been there. I wish I could have stood at that roadside and cast my jacket down for your donkey to go over. But Lord, I still hear you're here. And you've given good and noble hearts to your people. Lord, show us how to repent of that which is of darkness. And by your mighty power, by the power of your blood, cast it out of our hearts, for we no longer need it. You've given us a new heart. Lord, thank you for your kindness. Bless us today in your mighty name. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. Brought to you by the National Prayer Chapel in Woodbridge, Virginia. Write to us at the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia 22195, or visit us online at nationalprayerchapel.com. God bless you. We love you. Never cease Oh, this
So beautiful. 